by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing uh, the assassination attempt against former uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Uh, Also going to be uh, discussing the plight of Afghan refugees and asylum seekers here in the United States. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. We discuss sports, politics and struggle. And we're also having a very special second hour on By Any Means Necessary today, focusing on socialism and democracy inside China. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by journalist Wakas Ahmed. Wakas, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Absolutely. And Wakas, earlier this week, uh, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan survived uh, a shooting attempt on his life at a a political rally that uh, I believe uh, had been organized uh, uh, by his party. And according to his party, the PTI, he said that uh, a bullet struck Khan in the leg. And according to uh, senior PTI leader Assad Umar, quote, yes, he has been shot. There are pellets large in his leg. His bone has been chipped. He has also been shot in his thigh. Uh, uh, This week, also, the Pakistani uh, Ministry of Information released a video confession uh, from a man who claims that he carried out the attack. And in the video, the man said he wanted to kill Imran Khan because he, quote, was misleading the people. He added that the Khan rallies were playing music and shouting from the loudspeakers as the call for prayer was happening. I didn't like this happening on our soil. And it's my understanding, Walkis, that uh, Imran Khan actually just gave some kind of address. And so uh, uh, what do we know uh, about uh, what's happening in this point? Uh, what is Khan saying? And just what is your sort of analysis of all of this? Okay, so this happened yesterday uh, around 7 a.m. Uh, U.S. time, Eastern time. Uh, Imran Khan got uh, in, in the address today. Uh, his doctor actually showed the x-rays. He was uh, shot four times, two bullets in each leg. Uh, two in thighs, in each thigh, and two in legs. And uh, one gunman uh, was arrested from the spot. But Imran Khan, in his address today, said there were two gunmen because two gunmen because he could uh, he he got the bullets from two different sides. So this is like one of the main things, like how this is being covered <laughs> covered up. And to like go back to what we've been discussing, you know, in your previous shows, and in the, especially in the last show that we discussed, this has been going on since April. This started when in April when Imran Khan was removed from the government. This started then, and since then, the the temperature in Pakistan has been rising, and this was supposed to culminate in this march that Imran Khan was happening, was doing. This march, he put all his effort, all his people behind this march, and he was going to go to Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, and shut it down and call for uh, new elections. This is his only one demand. His demand is call for new elections. While doing this, the people who do not want new elections, that is the Pakistani government, current government, and the Pakistani military, who is helping the current government take power, these people do not want elections. And to stop these elections from happening since April, they have been um, they have been treating Pakistani people in a very, very brutal manner. 
they have tortured people they have abducted people they have murdered one journalist 10 days ago and this is not some random journalist he was the most uh, famous journalist of pakistan he has the biggest following in pakistan he is a journalist who has broken some really important investigative stories first they pushed him out of pakistan he had to run away from pakistan us denied him visa then he had to run away to kenya where pakistanis pakistani citizens can go without visa and still he was killed inside kenya by uh, the pakistani establishment so all of this now after arshad sharif the journalist who was killed things started getting really serious in pakistan and then when imran khan started his, his rally he was given threats at various time but by the same people who have killed this journalist and he did not listen to that and finally this this attack happened yesterday now this attack is also really suspicious because first of all this guy who was arrested from the spot he is he is some random drug addict he did shoot the bullets he, he has been caught on the uh, caught on camera shooting bullets and uh, but the thing is he is not some high highly trained commando who who has a really great aim he's some random patsy who has been brainwashed to to create chaos during the rally the plan seems to be and from what imran khan just told and the, his x-rays that they showed and all the bullet wounds that they showed the plan seemed to be send some random patsy to create chaos shoot a few bullets create chaos while a sniper sits on a rooftop who shoots Imran Khan directly and this is what happened this is what Imran Khan has been saying there were two shooters so the second shooter really got to him and but the problem was the first shooter shot early so everyone had like a few seconds of time to 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 duck basically and this is what saved Imran Khan um yeah so this is basically what happened yesterday Yeah, and of course, you know, in light of Imran Khan's uh, popularity with uh, uh, the people of Pakistan, obviously there were protests. How uh, did the people respond? And more importantly, what was the response from the government to those protests? It happened during evening in Pakistan, uh, around four, four to five p.m. So uh, during the night, people started to come out. and people were actually really anxious because they didn't know if imran khan was okay what the situation was and imran khan sent out one message to keep tell people to remain calm and peaceful that he's alive and after that during the night some people started coming out but this morning i see like as morning broke in pakistan i see a lot more people on the streets and there are police who are shelling at protesters and actually at some places the military is out on the roads because people started marching towards military installations because pakistani people understand that all this that is being done is not from the civilian government it is from the military side of the government which is backing the the, the civilian current civilian government so instead of going towards government installations they started moving towards military installations which has prompted these armored personnel carriers and military soldiers to come out of those installations and stand guard and this standoff is happening right now yeah and so so with this with this standoff and this sort of a uh, uh, nationwide 
tour of sorts that uh, Imran Khan was on uh, calling for elections. I mean, this is obviously uh, uh, all connected to, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, the broader political issues within Pakistan, as you noted, that we've discussed here, Wakas, in terms of, you know, the imprisonment of uh, Imran Khan and, you know, him being uh, ousted as prime minister. And I believe the last time we spoke, we were discussing the moves to try to keep him out of uh, uh, politics um, uh, uh, in the country. And so I I mean, it seems, I mean, to, to say the very least, not to state the obvious, that it uh, feels like the, the tension there has been deepened and exacerbated by, by this uh, incident. Yeah. And the thing is, these people are feeling really frustrated and helpless. Like we discussed last time, what the power behind Imran Khan is this huge rise of Pakistani middle class. It's, it is completely organic. And once such a movement arises, you cannot use anything to, to shut it down. They've tried propaganda, they've tried abducting people, they've tried killing people, and now they've finally tried um, killing Imran Khan. They've killed the most successful journalists in Pakistan. They, they have tried everything. They are so desperate that they're clutching at straws here. And they cannot, they cannot counter this big wave that has come. This is the actual issue. Yeah, of course, you know, with the, the next uh, uh, obvious question, I think, is what happens with his uh, long road campaign? Obviously, he has to recover. But what are his supporters uh, saying about continuing his long march, rather, campaign that he was on? Are they calling for him to continue? Are, or are people uh, becoming more afraid for his life? People are afraid of him for his life. But people want this to continue. There is intense pressure to, to keep to keep going. And Imran Khan just right now, like a few uh, minutes ago, announced that uh, they're going to continue this march as soon as he recovers. He has four bullets in his leg, and uh, as soon as he recovers, he, he said that he's going to start going. That, but that feels like maybe two, three more weeks till he's uh, you know good enough to stand up, maybe. So when that happens, he's he's saying that he will continue this march. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, um, what did we hear from uh, the Pakistani government uh, in response to this? Pakistani government, uh, the Pakistani prime minister has uh, condemned the attack. But that that's just words. Today, Imran Khan said that they tried to lodge... Uh, a, a report with the police, with the you know local police, saying you have to file a complaint, and they have refused to file that complaint because one of the persons that he is accusing is current serving military general in Pakistan, and the police are so afraid that they cannot even file a complaint against them. So the case for Imran Khan's murder attempt as a for, former prime minister of Pakistan, he has been unable to file that case, even case with the police to file that complaint, to lodge that complaint with the police. He has been unable to do that. And he just said that, that he's been unable to do that because, because the government and the, the military are uh, not, not even allowing that name to appear on a, on a government document as an accusation. Yeah, and and you know you noted early about the uh, the person who was arrested, who is a Patsy Khan, has actually named who he believes are behind uh, Thursday's uh, shooting attack. 
who did he name and why does he think they are involved? He has named three names. First is the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Shibaz Sharif, uh, because he feels that everything comes from source from the Prime Minister. Basically, the thing is, the Prime Minister, to keep his power, is orchestrating all this. The second person is uh, his Home Minister, Rana Sanallah Khan. Rana Sanallah has all the police and all the internal security of Pakistan. So he is responsible for orchestrating that kind of thing. Third is Major General Faisal Nasir. He is the uh, DG internal wing of the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence agency. Uh, he's the third person. He has also been named, this guy was previously named by a senator for stripping and torturing him. And he has been named by two journalists for doing the same. So he has some record of torturing civilians. Wow. And uh, considering this this long march that Khan has been on, I'm just curious, Wakas, about, uh, well, first of all, what is sort of uh, the, the, the scope uh, of it, uh, number one? And also, what has the response been like as he travels along the country? The response has uh, been overwhelming. So he's been going through di- different cities of Pakistan on this long road. Pakistan, if you look at the map, there is one straight lo- road that goes from north all the way up to the south. Uh, which is an ancient road, actually. It's called GT Road, Grand Trunk Road, made like hundreds of years ago. Uh, This road, if you look at Pakistan's geography, this road has uh, all the cities in Pakistan are basically located next to this road. So if you go through this road, you you keep on gathering momentum from different cities that you pass. This is what he's been doing. So he's been gathering people from each city to take him, take along with him. And even people, when they do not go along with him, every time he passes a city, people come out to look at him to attend his rally. So he's been he's been using this tactic to to uh, amplify his voice and to show that he is he continues to pull huge crowds. This is one of the reasons that they they went on to try to assassinate him. If he was not popular, if he was not pulling crowd, there would have been no need to assassinate it, assassinate him. There are like thousands of unpopular uh, politicians in Pakistan. They are no danger to the status quo. They're not no danger to the Pakistani establishment. Yeah, they're definitely not. And Khan had said that that the United States was behind his loss of power. And I'm wondering, Walkus, what has uh, been the response from the U.S. government? Has the State Department made a statement? Um, and, and would you expect them to, if they really are involved, which, you know, I don't question the, the veracity of that at all, but if they're really involved in removing Khan from power and certainly I- invested in making sure he doesn't return to it, yeah, this uh, accusation by Khan, I'm not exactly sure how far it is accurate. I do believe that there is some some involvement by the U.S. government. But there are two ways about it. Either the U.S. government asked Pakistani military to remove Imran Khan, or the Pakistani military sought approval from D.C. to uh, remove Imran Khan. Either of these things, they have they have different uh, consequences. I feel 
it was the Pakistani military and it was the Pakistani establishment who sought this approval and got this approval because of Imran Khan's uh, behavior with the U.S. government, but basically not following direct orders. So this approval was given. But when it went through in April, they kept on watching this job. The Pakistani military, the Pakistani establishment, Pakistani government has, has carried out this operation in a horrendous manner. This is what has brought us to this place. They have miscalculated every step. They have proven their incompetency even so much that U.S. is not willing to stand behind their multiple failures since April. U.S. has no choice now to just stand back and watch. And if there's some violence, condemn it in a way. The U.S. Has, hasn't even like supported Pakistan much to uh, the recent floods that happened. So all of this is is like not really clear about how, what the relationship between the, the conspiracy actually was. What Imran Khan says is that back in April, there was this American diplomat named Donald Liu, and he told the Pakistani ambassador in D.C. that Imran Khan needs to be removed. If Imran Khan is removed, everything will be okay in Pakistan-U.S. relationship. And the only proof Imran Khan has of that is one cable that was sent by the Pakistani ambassador to the, to uh, Washington to uh, back home. That is the only proof that we have. Yeah, and you know, uh, where do you think things go from here, really, uh, uh, Walkis? I mean, of course, as we've been discussing, uh, Khan uh, survived this attempt. It appears as though he intends to uh, continue the uh, uh, long march and things like that. And of course, uh, certainly, this doesn't improve uh, uh, things. The situation between him and uh, the ruling government. And so, I mean, you know, we can't see into the future, but uh, just what do you sort of? Uh, what is your feeling about how things may uh, move on? And, uh, following this incident, if I uh, go into my cynical side, they will try to kill him again because there is no way. This is a zero sum game now. Either they get killed or Imran Khan get, get, gets killed. Because if they allow Imran Khan back in power, that means Imran Khan will be in the government and Imran Khan will be able to try all these people. They, he will be able to punish all these people, and their crimes are big. Their crimes are treason, their crimes are torture, their crimes are murder. These are the crimes that you get death sentence for in any country of the world. So these are the crimes that they have committed. And if Iran Khan comes into power, they're gone, they're done. So the most logical thing for him, them to do is to keep on trying and to kill Iran Khan. This is what I feel that they might do. Well, we thank you so much, Walkers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the plight of Afghan refugees in the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jason Zubo, an immigration attorney, partner at Zubo and Pilcher, PLLC, and blogger at Asylumist.com, also author of the book Asylumist, How to Seek Asylum in the United States and Keep Your Sanity. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Jason, in the time since August 2021, when uh, the U.S. pulled out of its uh, decades long war of occupation in Afghanistan, uh, about 88,000 Afghans were evacuated to the U.S. by the U.S. government. Now, uh, generally, when people think about asylum for refugees and things like this, there's kind of an image and an expectation that people will be brought into the United States having their needs being taken care of, uh, being set up to basically, you know, get their feet on the ground here in a new country after coming from experiencing, you know, all manner of uh, trauma, violence, and uh, so many other things uh, from their countries of origin due to any number of issues. And uh, the thing about this is there's actually an Afghan Adjustment Act that was uh, specifically designed to uh, address uh, just these kinds of issues, but it has stalled in Congress. And so that image of the uh, refugee being uh, accepted and taken care of doesn't necessarily seem to be playing out uh, in uh, reality as a lot of these Afghan refugees uh, tend to linger in this almost uh, a limbo kind of uh, 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 existence, if you will. And so uh, to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what the Afghan Adjustment Act is, uh, why it has stalled out and what is the impact uh, that it has on these refugees or asylum seekers? Yeah, so like you say, we brought over 88,000 people after the uh, fall of Afghanistan, after the fall of the government to the Taliban. And, and those people are generally either uh, people who cooperated with the United States or Western organizations when we were in that country or people who were associated somehow with the uh, former Afghan government um, and their family members. So they came here. Uh, the U.S. government has granted them a two-year parole, which is basically a two-year temporary status, which allows them to work. But at the end of that two years, no one knows what's going to happen to them. And of course, now one year has already passed, more than one year. Uh, so Congress, in its wisdom, has thought had they come up with the idea to grant them status, a permanent status in the United States, since they can't go back, since their country is controlled by you know, a terrorist group. Um, and that's the Afghan Adjustment Act. It was introduced some months ago, I think probably even maybe in the late 2021. Um, it had bipartisan support. Uh, uh, and so the fact that it's kind of stalled is, is very strange to me, but it seems to me that the, the problem is that some lawmakers are objecting to the idea that uh, we don't know who these people are, some of them are terrorists, uh, they might be dangerous to the United States, uh, and so that's kind of been the problem. Now, that doesn't really seem like a legitimate objection to me since they're already here and just sort of hanging around, and the better approach would be to provide some pathway for them so that they can then come into the attention of the U.S. government, have any type of security background check that's needed, in addition to the one they've already had before they uh, were released. And then, uh, you know, either if they're a bad person, I suppose, find some way to deport them or something to, to do to, to protect the United States from any harm they might cause, or for the vast, vast majority of them, uh, just regularize their status, since there's no way any of them can go back to their country. Um, but unfortunately, uh, since 
Act has not become law. Uh, all these 88,000 people are sort of left with no no real solution, and so many of them have been applying for political asylum, uh, which they're eligible for. Uh, it's a long, kind of complicated process for many of them. Uh, but uh, it also uh, dumps a whole bunch of new people into a very, very backlogged and messed up uh, system. Uh, there's already 543,000-some people waiting for interviews or decisions uh, for their asylum cases. And so now here's another 88,000 people uh, who are potentially going to be pushed into that system. So it, it's a real problem for all asylum seekers because uh, they're taking resources that really shouldn't be used for them. And it's a problem for them since you know they have a, a strong uh, uh, basis to remain in the United States. It's just that the Congress has failed to act. And then, you know, it's a part of that uh, interview process, that asylum process that you note that is so convoluted and and overwrought uh, that is also a part of the problem because the interviews that asylum seekers, these particular asylum, asylum seekers are subjected to seem to be really problematic because, I mean, these folks were good enough or worthy enough to work for the U.S. government while the United States, an invading force in Afghanistan and later an occupying force for nearly 20 years, worked were were able to work for them. But now when they're brought here, they're asked all kinds of questions that doesn't uh, seem to confer the the uh, uh, importance that they did have to the United States government that really, I think, is reflective of how these folks were used and thrown away by that very government. So give us some insight into what uh, uh, Afghan asylum seekers have to face going through this process. Yeah, so one sort of positive here, I guess, from their point of view, at least, is that the Congress you know, they didn't help them in terms of providing them a permanent status, but they did order the asylum officers to do their cases extra fast, meaning they're jumping ahead of the line of everybody else. So if you're an asylum seeker who filed his case in, you know, 2015, and you still haven't been interviewed seven years later, almost eight years later, uh, you get to see all these people arriving newly in the United States jumping ahead of you. So from that person's perspective, it's quite bad. Uh, but from the perspective of the Afghans, I suppose it's good because their cases are getting priority. So when you, for example, I was at the asylum office maybe two days ago, uh, and it's just completely filled with people from Afghanistan. Um, that being said, uh, you know, the, these are the very fact that a person would be put on a plane brought to the United States and has been living here for the last year would put them in grave danger from the Taliban government who hates the United States. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, from my perspective, like really the only questions to ask these these evacuees are, are you a terrorist? Are you a criminal? Do you want to harm the United States? Is there any other bar to receiving asylum in the U.S., such as, you know, you have permanent status to live in France, for example, or any other country? Um, or maybe you didn't file your asylum application on time, which in this case all of them have. Uh, so there's really not a lot to discuss, but despite that, the, the, you, know, you go through these interviews and there's long conversations about really irrelevant information, like, for example, could the former government of Afghanistan protect you from the Taliban? Well, why does that matter? Um, the, the former government is gone. The Taliban are now in charge. So that's not a relevant question. Um, there's lots of questions, what lawyers call fishing expeditions. Oh, you know, the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the 1990s. Were you living there? Did you pay taxes? If so, that means you gave money to the Taliban. If you gave money to the Taliban, maybe you're barred from asylum. So there's this very broad, uh, it's called the uh, terrorism, material support of terrorism bar, 
Um, it's very, very broad. So, for example, if, if a terrorist comes to your house and says, I'm going to kill your whole family unless you give me a glass of water, um, and then you give that terrorist a glass of water, you're barred from asylum in the United States under that bar. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but, but so when it's already a very broad bar, and then they're, you know, the officers are on a fishing expedition for even a broader range of possible behavior that might somehow trigger that bar, um, you're really putting these people in a difficult position. Because uh, So what if you passed through a checkpoint in 1997 and you gave a nickel to the Taliban? Does that mean you're barred from asylum? Is that really the, the, the policy that we want to uh, uh, pursue here? Um, there's been some relaxation of some of these issues, but but still the, these interviews are subjecting people to uh, a very long examination about their history uh, and kind of looking for stuff that just doesn't exist. I mean, I've, I've done probably, I don't know, two, three hundred interviews of Afghan uh, asylum seekers in my career, um, and never once has someone given uh, money to a Taliban at a checkpoint. It's just not a common occurrence because of just the, the, the nature of who is coming to the United States and what interactions they had in their home country, um, and, and just through the way the conflict was going over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Yeah, so you think then the uh, U.S. government is being overvigilant in, in trying to find these kinds of connections uh, between uh, these terrorist groups and, ref- and uh, asylum seekers? I would say not even overvigilant. I would say it's just being irrational. Um, you know, it's one thing to be vigilant to look out for uh, actual terrorists, for sure. That's important. Um, it's, I guess, important to look out for people who are maybe forced to give some type of support to a terrorist, like, you know, give me a dollar at the checkpoint. But what, what they're doing is kind of looking for information that just doesn't exist. You know, if the person uh, was living in Afghanistan in the 1990s, um, the Taliban were the government. So they weren't on a designated terrorist list. I mean, they were, but they weren't uh, in terms of the material support bar. And so, uh, you know, it, it just it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter what information they're gathering in, in this regard. So there's sort of these these questions which I mean I, I know that they're they're trying to be very overly broad in terms of looking for material support of terrorism when it's just a situation that it just wouldn't exist and there's certain situations where it could exist maybe more recently but but what they're searching for is these asylum entities goes way beyond that and it's it's not really a danger that we face from these people in terms of terrorism it's just were they forced at some point in their life to give money or something, a glass of water, to an organization that is a terrorist group? Um, and if that's the case, why should that bar them from asylum? Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, get what you're saying. And I'm also curious, Jason, as someone who deals with these uh, asylum issues firsthand, um, what what impact does this kind of limbo status have on the lifestyle of uh, Afghan refugees. And the reason I ask is because I just think it's generally true that, um, you know, there's this uh, kind of idea in the minds of a lot of Americans that people come here, uh, you know, from different countries and basically get like the red carpet rolled out for them and, you know, uh, maybe stealing resources from um, other Americans and things like this and so on and so forth. I tend to think that uh, people's uh, uh, lifestyles and things like that are actually uh, far more uh, precarious than that. But I'm just wondering, like, what, what impact does that really have on the lifestyle of these uh, asylum seekers as they try to put down roots uh, in the United States, but the system just makes that uh, very difficult. Yeah, I think the Afghans, in some sense, because they're moving more quickly, have it less bad than many. But even for them, I mean, it's extremely traumatizing what they went through. They lost their homes, their careers, their friends, their family members, people they know have been killed. 
Um, they had this very chaotic evacuation where all their belongings, like just even basic stuff like school records or work records, is, is gone. Um, you know, anything that you have built over the course of your life has been ripped away from you, and now it's it's gone. Um, and so sort of to, to sort of under, uh, undergo that ordeal and now to be here uh, in limbo and sort of being forced to advocate for yourself in a place that you don't know uh, is very difficult. In fact, just today, I think just now as we speak, uh, there's a protest going on of Afghan uh, uh, asylum seekers and other Afghans uh, uh, at the uh, the office of Ted Cruz in Texas because he's one of the people objecting to the Afghan Adjustment Act. So, you know, not only are they having to come here and sort of find their way and figure it out in a different language, different culture, um, without their support of family and friends, but now they're also support. They're sort of forced to become political activists because if they don't, uh, no, nothing's going to happen, and they're really going to be remaining in limbo. So they're trying to help themselves, which is is admirable, but it's unfortunate that it's necessary. And, and it's not just them who are forced to do this. Uh, you know, lots of other asylum seekers have now been starting to protest. There was a protest last week at the local asylum office in Virginia, where I am. Uh, and, and, you know, because these people have been waiting for six, seven years or more, separated from family members with no end in sight. Um, and so the system really is very, uh, it's inflicting great damage on the people who it's meant to help. And, and just there's just no sort of a real responsiveness from the government. I mean, they say the right things. We want to help. And we, we agree. We support asylum. But in the end, uh, all these people uh, are waiting and waiting with, with really no prospect of having a, a, an end. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie, glad to be back. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back, uh, Nate. And of course, one of the uh, uh, top and most prominent stories in sports right now is the issue of uh, Kyrie Irving, as the Brooklyn Nets have suspended him for at least five games without pay uh, uh, for what they call uh, uh, him failing to, quote, unequivocally say he has no anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, He uh, generally had uh, refused to apologize uh, during a post-practice sort of uh, a media session. Um, uh, I believe this was Thursday of this week. And according to the Nets, they said Irving is, quote, currently unfit to be associated with the Brooklyn Nets. We were dismayed today when given an opportunity in a media session that Kyrie refused to unequivocally say he has no anti-Semitic beliefs nor acknowledge specific hateful material in the film. This was not the first time he had the opportunity but failed uh, to clarify. And so um, a lot going 
going uh, uh, around uh, uh, about this, of course, Nate, I believe about four hours after the suspension was announced, Irving actually did uh, issue an apology. But uh, just sort of wondering what you're making, not only about uh, Kyrie's behavior here, but uh, the, the reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that strikes me is just like the way that whenever one of these situations happens, I mean, we've seen this, uh, we saw this with Deshaun Jackson a couple of years ago. Um, when it was an issue with like, Louis Farrakhan and statements he made, and uh, that were uh, suggestions that, that he made, there were anti-Semitic like, comments. But um, you know, I don't think and he was apologetic, and I think some of it comes from a place where you know we have really poor political education in this country. People know that things are not as they seem. They know there's oppression happening, and a lot of times athletes who very much live in a bubble. Um, in terms of just being having to keep your you know, head down and be focused on your craft to be able to, to be good at what you do, um, you know, wade into some of these explanations that that, that do you know offend certain people. I mean, the business let's be clear. It's like this is kind of like Kyrie's been drifting into some interest with the black Hebrew Israelites. He's been you know, he's converted to Islam, as he explained. He's he's, a, he's clearly a, a critical thinker and one that doesn't just accept sort of. Um, the official line about things, and, and sometimes it gets them in, in trouble, and it doesn't always say whatever's the right thing. And you know, while I don't agree the content for like you know the film, it, it, it portrays the idea that it's all about the, the Jewish people as we see them in the media and culture today um, are not the real Jews, so to speak, and that like uh, uh, that saying they're imposters is sort of the general message of that film. Now he's you know, uh, put up on social media so basically a screenshot without any context just saying like hey I'm just watching this didn't say like I think this is the greatest film ever you should agree with every point but the problem then becomes the backlash so, well, you think, if you think that's wrong he's using this platform to uh, promote something that's objectively um, harmful or hateful um, the solution then should not be though that you have to go work with the anti-defamation league which is like objectively ultra pro-Zionist organization masquerading as a civil rights organization in this country run by a uh, complete, you know, this, this fraud and the guy named Jonathan Greenblatt who uh, has very close ties to Netanyahu, uh, the worst of the worst people within the Israeli government. But yet they get to go on and be presented here within domestically within the United States as if they are just an anti-hate group that teaches tolerance, that teaches us to, like, get along to, you know, how to, uh, you know, accept one another and whatnot. And it's just a total fraud. So I, 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 it's, it's a weird situation now where, yeah, I think it's kind of irresponsible. I guess I, I, that mess, the message in that film is not one you know I would want to promote. But at the same time, it's up on Amazon right now. You can watch it on the Prime. You can watch it on uh, you know, Walmart services. Or like, you know, I was talking with uh, you know, former Sputnik coach Bob Slayhuber last night about this. And it's like, so those well, where's the criticism of Jeff Bezos and the Walton family for allowing this content to be platformed? Um, you know, it, it is interesting. It's like what, what kind of free speech is allowed and what kind is not. And the idea that the Anti-Defamation League now has to come in, because then what does his apology actually mean? Is he apologizing because he's really learned? I mean, is it more about semantics? Because he's talking about I'm a Semite too, you know, I, I'm, it's just in a historical type term. And we've talked about this too with Palestinian state. We're Semitic people and whatnot. Who, who has the authority? Who has the power to determine the meaning of names? So we know in conventional American society, when you hear anti-Semitism, we know just most people understand that to mean anti-Jewish sentiment, right? Anti-Jewish views. Um, but Kyrie's kind of like playing this like 
you know, intellectual savant type role and trying to challenge people and challenge people, challenge the meaning of words and whatnot. And I'm not saying I think it's really the greatest use of his time. I know his teammates certainly don't appreciate it. Probably that's a distraction and, uh, and what they're trying to work towards, especially how many games he's missed in recent years. But we really do need to analyze like this reaction that always happens, whatever an athlete or celebrity, I don't even want to get into the Kanye West stuff, but I mean, obviously that's been a new I don't think it's fair to put Kyrie in that same category. Um, uh, I really don't, but I think it is fair to really look at the role that's played by the anti-defamation league as like somehow this pure type organization that's meant to come out and be the one that helps rehabilitate some, you know, pro athlete who's stepped out of line. Yeah, and the fact that uh, Irving actually did eventually apologize and he held a press conference, I think this is where uh, folks were even more angry at him because he said some interesting things. He said, where were you guys asking those same questions when I was a kid learning about the traumatic events of my familial history and what I'm proud to come from and proud to stand here? Uh, This is what Irving said. And he said, when I repeat myself that I'm not going to stand down, it has nothing to do with dismissing any other race or group of people. And I, I think he raises an interesting and a valid point, even though the movie that he shared contained some, you know, questionable um, and the, you know, really insulting content. It's like that there is obviously a double standard when certain athletes stand up for and, and show pride in who they are. And, and I'm not at all making excuses for Kyrie Irving sharing this, this, this movie uh, because, you know, what he said later about the Holocaust was really, really messy. Um, you know, he, he, he said that, uh, you know, the Holocaust in itself is an event that means something to a large group of people that suffered something that could have been avoided. So, I mean, at the on the one hand, he's raising a valid point about the double standard in a black athlete being proud of his uh, heritage and ancestry, even if <laughs> that heritage and ancestry he claims is really messy and problematic. But then on the other hand, it's like he puts his foot in his mouth and and suggests that, um, you know, the, the Holocaust could have been avoided. Like, whose responsibility for that would that have been, right? So I'm wondering how you feel about uh, that aspect of what Irving has been saying and the response to him. Is there a little bit of a double standard of, you know, because he is a high-profile Black athlete standing up for uh, something that's important to his culture, then, you know, he he's basically told he can't do that. Yeah, there absolutely is a double standard. I don't want to wait too much into the, the Holocaust stuff because it's always, you know, right. You know, it just it, it, it's so raw and, and it's just the way it, it is in discourse in our society. But I will say that um, certainly the leave it and ambiguous like he did could have been avoided was problematic. I mean, if you're going to make that point, you need to like, be specific on what you mean. There, there's, uh, you know, there could have been. You know, we could have had policies in the United States to, like, you know, clamp down on, you know, uh, big corporations that were doing business with Nazi Germany, right? We could have done, um, there could have been policy decisions made by the powers to be around the world, right, to uh, to, to take action against what Nazi Germany was becoming uh, that, that could have potentially prevented it. But the way he kind of leaves it ambiguous is to suggest that maybe they just didn't fight resist hard enough, right? Maybe people were just, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it just by 
if you don't want to be specific about what you what you're actually saying when you're making a point about it could have been avoided, it is better to avoid it, right? I, I would I would argue. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not I'm not trying to defend Kyrie on that, but I think the exposing the double standard stuff is real. Um, you know, I think that, that it's I, I, Kyrie is, is madly frustrating. He, he's one of truly the most um, in terms of a basketball player just pure like artists on the court. I mean, he, you've always talked about what he does is like is trying to orchestrate something beautiful, trying to create like the same way an artist would. That's the way he frames what he does. He, so I, I, I he does endear himself to me in the sense that so few athletes oftentimes um, that have prominence are even on a level where they're trying to engage intellectually. Right. And they're trying to, um, you know, be, you know, read, read books and engage with people and, and, and promote sort of like use their platform as a means to say, Hey, learning about things and thinking for yourself is cool. But then, which is good. But then of course it gets tricky when you're promoting like a film with a black Hebrew Israelite message and stuff that, that came at from, came from them where sure there are criticisms of like, you know, mainstream official narrative, historical narratives in there. They have, that, 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 you know, have some points that are wrong, but it, the conclusions they draw, what it, what it all means, and then the way they kind of like tie it all together to be like, you know, you know, art. We're the real like, you know, Jews and all these people are fake and stuff. Easily leads to people getting involved in, you know, identitarian kind of fascistic type politics ultimately because it's all it, it is designed in in a very tribalistic way and in a way that that, that ultimately doesn't unite people. Unfortunately. Um, so it's a weird spot to be because it's like, I've, I've seen it coaching, you know, high school football and in, in, in the inner city in Jacksonville and then up in Jersey city when I was still up there and, and, uh, and talking to players I've coached and students I've taught and, you know, a lot of it comes like the Illuminati conspiracies and, you know, other stuff that you, know, you kind of see on the internet where they're looking for ways to explain the conditions of oppression around them but not with all the tools, not power with all the tools. And a lot of times, so these, these sort of um, explanations that sort of like give you a, a film package expl- uh, description of what, well, what the issue is and, and why things are the way they are, are appealing. It's simple. It's, it's, it's to the point. It gives you a clear kind of like, you know, enemy that uh, you can point to. And, and the world's just not that simple. It's not like, uh, you know, just, and, and, and it obviously, Kyrie is waded into something here. It's a big business problem too, because he also plays in a city that's heavily Jewish, and most of that Jewish support does support is still Zionist and supports Israel. At least the people that are spending money to buy tickets at the Barclays Center, they're going to see the Brooklyn Nets. So he's creating um, major sort of problems for him in terms of in, in the organization um, from a business perspective, and and eventually, you know, no matter how good you are in professional sports, there's only you know, so much they'll put up with in terms of like you interfering with the bottom line and profitability before, uh, you know, things are going to, you know, come undone. I don't see him getting a long-term contract against any team in the, in the NBA. Uh, he'll be playing on one-year deals, I predict, uh, for the foreseeable future as long as he wants to play because I don't think teams feel like they can just trust it. For whatever his reasons are, that he'll just be on the court. So we're in kind of a, a you know, uh, it's just here we are again with another, Another Kyrie, uh, you know, finding a way, as Stephen A. Smith wants to say, to get more time off work. But uh, I don't really, you know, that <laughs> that was his line this morning. But it's, uh, 
But I do think the reaction to it and the use of the ADL really needs to be critiqued because the ADL needs to be exposed for the fraud of a civil rights organization they are when what they really are is a front group for whatever the Israeli government's doing and to try to redefine anti-Semitism to mean being criticism of Israel and, and, and being critical of Israel and what they're doing and their, you know, obviously brutal policies towards Palestinians and, you know, larger in, in the region at large and around the Middle East. Definitely. And switching gears uh, here, Nate, to the NFL, uh, the Snyders are actually looking to sell the Washington Commanders uh, football team. And we've been marking here on the show about uh, increasing pressure to, to get Snyder out of the league. And I, I would say, at least for me, this seems this is happening a lot uh, faster than I thought it would. But uh, I mean, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, it's re- it really is accelerating. I've just been reading about it this morning. Um, you know, the big thing right now is that, you know, the NFL owners do not want to bring – most owners want him out. I mean, Colson or Jim Ursay has talked very specifically about it with an embarrassment it is to the league. He is to the league. Um, you, know, it, you know, Dan and his wife, Tanya Snyder, is taking the active role in the team too because of his absent, being absent. Um, they've, um, but they've clearly now made the you know, Ohio Bank of America and you know, the security department kind of look into – um, the potential of selling the team, but what's tricky is whether he's going to sell the majority stake in the team that Forbes, you know, values at five point six billion dollars, or that that valuation there. There's a lot of rumors now, smoke about Jeff Bezos potentially coming involved, and that could drive it up to seven or eight billion. But there's also the potential that he sells the minority stake in the team of like thirty percent, just to get you know an extra eight hundred million to a billion dollars or more cash flow on hand, while he still retains control of the team so I, I hope that we we keep that in mind that um you know what getting excited at the prospect of, of maybe i know people in washington there was a nbc4 in washington had a, a news story on about guys going out interviewing people in the streets in dc or just dancing and joy at the thought of snyder selling the team you know pump the brakes a little bit um i don't even if that does happen i think it'll be at least six months to, to kind of go through this process um but nonetheless given the, the history of snyder and what the, the, the things that have happened under his watch, you know, he's tried to you know, you know, clean house and put it off on like the you know, road people within his organization. But I mean, who all brought those people into the organization and who are responsible for the culture of it? Ultimately, um, it's pretty weak to kind of claim that it's all just people he cleaned house with. And then now they're rebranded as the commanders, you know, it's a whole new day and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it's, I would also have to get into all the details again with all the allegations about workplace harassment and the, the trips with cheerleaders and all that. Um, but there's just a lot of that out there and um, people want to see Snyder gone, but NFL owners also don't want to have to exercise the, the, the there's 32 of them. 24 of them would have to vote to expel him. And when you do that, you set a precedent that that's an action they're willing to take. I don't think many of them want that kind of smoke coming back on them potentially and um, having that precedent being something that the public starts to expect as a remedy to deal with that behavior or criminal behavior, even essentially um, from NFL owners. So they're hoping that you will sell the team out of pressure. And I, I will say last thing is that I do think the NFL is taking like active measures, almost in an intelligence op type, type of way to have these drips of stories just continuously dropping from, you know, NFL sources are telling ESPN or the athletics that, you know, Snyder's losing all confidence from owners. Snyder's like becoming, you know, um, 
you know, Snyder wants to sell the team. Snyder wants to do this. Snyder you know, needs to go. And I think that's a, an organized effort coming out of, of the NFL in New York City. I think they want him gone. They just don't, owners just basically don't want to have to set the precedent of removing him officially. And uh, so we will see how this proceeds. Yeah, another thing I wanted to touch on today, Nate, is uh, the the Ukrainian Soccer Federation is uh, trying to get FIFA to remove Iran from the World Cup, which takes place next month. And uh, the reason for this is allegations of human rights violations and supplying the Russian military with weapons. I mean, what's this about? It's just beyond the theater of the absurd at this point. I mean, so FIFA, one of the most corrupt international organizations that would just be charitable and say, at least in the realm of sports, um, is I haven't, I haven't acted on it yet, but the Ukraine the you know, Football Federation, um, there has, uh, which Ukraine is not in the World Cup. And for a while, it seemed as if like they were almost lobbying to get themselves, you know, to replace Iran, who was set to play England actually coming up in, you know, just a little over two weeks actually now in a World Cup when it starts in, in Qatar. Um, so they're, yeah, this is not something England's trying to prepare to play Iran. You have these stories floating around. You had Sky Sky, Sports, uh, Sky News Australia had a guy on talking just yesterday about the potential of even having a South Asian country replace them. That would be more, you know, I guess to the liking of, of uh, you know, FIFA potentially, and that and, and floated the idea of the UAE being that a country that is uh, has a horrible human rights record. Um, it's always funny that you hear these criticisms of Iran which I'm, I'm not saying there aren't valid criticisms of Iran, you can, but the, the reality is it is, uh, uh, you know, those criticisms are all going to help a, a neoconservative regime change objective coming out of the United States right now when you're putting, a, putting that forth. And it, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, the politics of that is just, that's just the reality of it. So that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, criticism of Iran and, and amplifying that now, you're feeding into the frenzy of like, you know, there needs to be regime change in Tehran. And you never hear these same criticisms blown back on the Gulf monarchy states where like literal slavery is still in practice. I mean, places like Qatar, where they just take the passports of migrant workers and, you know, if you don't pay them, then you don't have any you know, recourse for that. I mean, the UAE, I mean, you talk about just a state where uh, the oligarchy of all oligarchy and just those just brutal uh, laws. Um, you know, got labor laws and, and, and violations of human rights, uh, but of course they're not. Um, you know, they're I guess they're allied with uh, the, the, as the West would see it, the good guys, and, uh, and that's sort of uh, the, where we are with this hypocrisy. I mean, we're not going to get into the things you know, you know Ukraine's done in this recent war, and, and what the Azov Battalion, Right Sector, ADAR, these different groups have done within their own country. Um, the, the rooting out of people with Russian sympathies and whatnot and doing these investigations and ban- banning of the Russian language and all kinds of discrimination within that, within that country. But um, it's, uh, it's pretty rich is all I can say. And uh, I think as of now, it's not going to work. But the fact that it's gotten somewhat pub already in international media um, is just troubling because it, uh, it just shows the power of propaganda and how they can uh, push these narratives and it is unfortunate because I, I don't, you know, it, that you, you'd want to support this on a human level if a, you know, you know, protest and people standing up against authority and power. But the reality is with Iran, you know, they are pretty mild compared to the, the sort of anti-women laws you have in Saudi Arabia um, and, and you have in you know, the Gulf state monarchies. 
Uh, not to say that it's not, you know, there's, there's not oppression and, and, it, and it's not unjust, but the idea that we're going to start removing teams from the World Cup, well, for, for human rights violations, uh, let's just say that's a slippery slope, slippery slopes right there. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch TDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, November 4th, 2022. And we're very excited today to have a special second hour here on By Any Means Necessary, focused on socialism and democracy inside China. And we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Tings Chak, researcher and coordinator of the Art Department of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and a founding member member of the Dongsheng News Collective. Tings, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Tings. And, you know, just about every day on the show, we are marking how the contradictions of capitalism are becoming uh, increasingly sharp here in the United States. Of course, the sort of beating heart of world imperialism. And I feel like we see these contradictions playing out in a number of ways, both internal and external to the U.S., Now, internally, I feel like we're seeing it reflected in uh, a market deterioration in the uh, uh, living conditions of uh, swaths of America's poor, working and uh, oppressed people. Uh, What we on the show describe as a serious uh, social and political rot uh, that has set in in this country. And then uh, beyond that, when we talk about imperialism and the way that that's uh, playing out and impacting things, certainly. Certainly, this is reflected in the ongoing proxy war uh, in Ukraine against Russia as part and parcel of uh, uh, the new Cold War, which seems to have as its primary target socialist China. And then, of course, there are these uh, overarching existential issues like uh, uh, climate change, which is also uh, exacerbated by capitalism. And so uh, this, I I think, makes even more relevant the recently concluded Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, where they discussed a lot of uh, important uh, pressing issues for uh, uh, the country moving forward. And uh, understanding how, you know, what's termed socialism with Chinese characteristics and how that's not only uh, impacted China as a country, but what it also means for these uh, shifting dynamics from a geopolitical standpoint, I think is uh, uh, important to mark, which is Definitely why we wanted to bring you on today. And so to begin, uh, when we talk about the Congress, uh, Xi Jinping, a Chinese president, said, quote, in pursuing modernization, China will not tread the old path of war 
colonization, and plunder taken by some countries. That brutal and bloodstained path of enrichment at the expense of others caused great suffering for the people of developing countries. We will stand firmly on the right side of history and on the right side of human progress. Now, Tings, here lately, a lot has been said of uh, uh, multipolarity and multilateralism, particularly following uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So my question to you is, in what ways has China contributed to the construction of a global system of cooperation that stands up to the current international order dominated by the U.S. and the West? No, I mean, I think this is, I'm glad you're starting here because the question of sort of modernization and how this is a part of um, this new contestation, let's say, or a new path or a new model that could be possible for the rest of the world, you know? Um, is essential. And I just want to maybe before answering how China's contributing to the construction is start with breaking down this modernization that uh, she mentioned several times. In fact, I counted 33 times um, in uh, his report. It's just a little bit more than the next word, which is Marxism. So I think that's interesting for us to note. Um, but I think it's we have to ask what kind of modernization and, and through what means? And, and what does this mean in terms of relations between nations, between peoples? And who gets to determine you know, that definition? So in the statement is actually a really strong, um, I think, uh, symbol of saying, okay, China is on a path that is distinct from the Western capitalist modernization. You know, it's a criticism of that path. And it also challenges the monopoly of the capitalist West over its definition and how it's practiced. And so I think one of the questions now is really breaking down what is what is China proposing? And it's a really bold proposition. And first of all, this this kind of model of modernization is based on a socialist one. There's a constant affirmation of what socialist modernization is. And in this particular um, Congress, um, this was kind of elaborated on. Uh, and they were looking at a few characteristics. You know, how do you modernize a, a country that has such a huge population, 1.4 billion people? How do you actually lift up? the material and cultural and, you know, a variety of conditions for uh, such a large pop uh, population. Um, how do you look at things like common prosperity, you know, uh, the uh, which is really a question of, you know, since the 1980s opening up a reform period, this period of rapid economic growth, you know, a lot of the people in the West like to talk about the Deng, famous Deng Xiaoping quote that says, you know, let some people get rich first. But what's also actually missed uh, in the Western interpretation, and I don't think it's accidental, is the second half of that phrase, which is that let some people get rich so that those who get rich have to lift up those uh, who are not yet rich to achieve common prosperity. So I think this is a, a also a new phase of thinking about, OK, where's China in its development and how does it push forward a socialist modernist uh, modernization project? And I think one of the key things, and I think the quote you pulled out is excellent, because it's one that is about peaceful development, not at the expense of, you know, let's say uh, the invasions of other countries or political coercion or other means of dominations of other territories, peoples or lands. And I mean, one of the things I think it's a key cornerstone to how China has been sort of approaching constructing a multilateral or global system of cooperation is through, I think, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, since this was uh, announced in 2013, um, 
now there's over 140 countries that are involved in this, largely in the global south. You know, this is huge impacts in terms of the the, the lack of infrastructural developments, uh, particularly in Africa, Latin America, and across Asia. Um, that is absolutely necessary. It's providing a potential, an option, another way forward that I think after the 40 years of a neoliberal order led by the West, you know, through the IMF and the World Bank, that that path has been exhausted. And I think that is also part the this part, brutal path that, you know, she is talking about that has actually enriched the West or the global North at the expense of uh, the rest of the global South that is still quite underdeveloped in this very unequal world that we live in. Definitely. And you mentioned a moment ago, Tings, about how often uh, Xi Jinping mentioned uh, Marxism. And I want to touch on that for just a moment, because I feel like not enough is said about the ideological underpinnings of Chinese socialism and how that reflects on their uh, uh, policies and the way that they uh, conceive of governing, which is crucially important, particularly with a country with a population, the sheer size of China. Do you know what I mean? And so why do you think we saw this kind of emphasis on uh, Marxism from Xi Jinping uh, uh, throughout the course uh, of the Congress? And what do you think it means for the trajectory of uh, uh, the party and the country uh, in the coming period? No, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's important to stress that these aren't just words. You know, the the report that, you know, was presented by uh, Xi Jinping was um, read and reviewed and edited by thousands of people, you know, at all sectors of society and all levels. So this is a highly um, um, sort of debated uh, document coming out of the last Congress to chart a course forward and also and uh, look back at what has been achieved in the last five years. Um, and so the, every word really counts. Um, and so I think the emphasis on Marxism, and I want to just point out, since we're talking about the language used in this report, is um, also market was substantially used less. Um, I did a, you know, I did my nerdy counting comparing to some of the uh, speeches uh, that were done uh, 10 years before uh, when uh, President Hu Jintao was, was uh, the outgoing president, and then 10 years before that when we had Jiang uh, Jiming. Uh, uh, and I think what's interesting is in this particular speech, it uses about half of the uh, number of times of market in in the um, in the speech, and maybe a third of what was used 20 years ago. And what we see is a lot of Marxism, a lot of socialism, uh, a lot of this question of a people-centered philosophy or people-centered development, uh, and this question of the socialist modernization. So I think this is a signal towards the emphasis of where the country is going. But in terms of how you know socialist language and and, and Marxism gets used. I, I want to just point to one example. I think it's a really important one, which is an article that was published shortly before um, uh, the Congress. And it's an article, actually, an internal speech by Xi from 2018. And it was published by the party's paper called Chiu Shi. Uh, actually, Dongsheng, we published a part of it in translation, if you want to check it out on the website there. But um, he was citing in there um, the trajectory uh, from Marx to Engels to Lenin to Mao and Deng, and this sort of putting China's particular moment that it's living, this conjuncture, in this history of scientific socialism, this continuity of a world socialist project, especially that was, you know, uh, quite um, a setback after the Soviet collapse. And in there, he also says, and I'm quoting here, if socialism had not achieved the current success in China, 
And the practice of socialism might have to wander back into obscurity for a long time. Again, like a ghost wandering through the world, as Marx said. So, and in that, it's a kind of um, um, a kind of rallying cry for for especially the party to not forget that the you know that they're made up of communists and are revolutionaries and have that revolutionary spirit. So, I think this does say a lot about this sort of revival of this original mission, is often called here, or this ori- original revolutionary spirit. And I think it's you know, something for all of us who are socialists or of the left of the world uh, should pay attention to. Absolutely. And, you know, you published a piece uh, about this, Tings. Uh, really, you co-authored it with friend of the show, uh, Dr. Vijay Prashad uh, for People's Dispatch. It's titled China's Path to Socialist Modernization. And in that piece, you note how, quote, this new Congress has gone beyond those tough battles to protect Chinese sovereignty and to extend, excuse me, and to expand the dignity of the Chinese people. How have conceptions of socialism and socialist modernization changed? in the last decade since the last National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party? And how do the challenges that China faces today compare to its historical challenges, right? And how might it address those challenges to continue to build towards that socialist future? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm glad we're spending quite a bit of time on the socialist modernization and unpacking that. Um, Actually, you know, if we're looking at a historical view, Um, sort of the China model of modernization, um, this sort of phrasing, was um, actually brought up by Deng Xiaoping. It wasn't from Xi Jinping. So it is part of a longer history of how, I think exactly as you're saying, how has this understanding of socialist modernization changed with the conjuncture and changed with, you know, the stage that China was at. And so one of the things, I mean, just looking back is that, remember, um, in the opening of reform period under Deng, you know, uh, using very uh, classical Mao language is, you know, thinking about the principal contradictions in each stage. There's been a, a sense of, okay, there are many contradictions in society, but what is the principal one that needs to be addressed? During the Mao era, it was class struggle between the workers and the bourgeoisie. During the Deng era, it was already an understanding that, okay, China made significant gains uh, in the social, economic, industrial, uh, what have you, uh, aspects, but there was still a huge underdevelopment of the productive forces. So there needed to be a a shift in this, the principal contradiction of the time, which was that you need to balance the need for meeting material needs, you know, of the people, food, shelter, clothing, and this question of this, you know, quote unquote, backward social production. And so at this point, you already start talking about the four modernizations, this, this China's path to modernization that hadn't been charted. There was no course charted. There was no manual in place uh, for, for kind of lifting a country as, you know, that was quite underdeveloped, one of the poorest of the world when the PRC was founded in 1949. So that was really a focus in that period of economically developing, an economic-centered um, uh, modernization. What we're seeing here, um, especially since uh, it's really a term that uh, she introduced at the last Congress, was his understanding of a people, a transition to a people-centered modernization. Because at the same time, this concept of the principal contradiction has actually officially been adopted, uh, uh, has gone into a new phase, a new era. So China has been able to develop its productive force to a certain level. Um, You know, now it's the second largest economy. But now how do you look at the principal contradiction of today, which is unequal distribution, inequality, you know, the need for 
at continuously a better life for the people. And so this is exactly now that people centered. Okay, how do you work on some of these um, um, uh, social inequalities that have emerged in that rapid ex uh, economic expansion? Um, how do you look at the kind of distribution and even distribution between regions, between the rural uh, areas and the cities? And this is where we're at as a new phase and how we're understanding this this phase of the socialist modernization project. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about the socialist project in China and the ideological underpinnings of Marxism, this this is a, a scientific uh, a way of thinking. Right. It's a scientific politic that's based in uh, uh, objective conditions as we find them. And so uh, uh, both in Z's report, his uh, speech uh, at uh, the Congress and sort of a, a lot of what we saw coming from it, it wasn't merely a, a laudatory of accomplishments and things like that, that there were also uh, criticisms and critiques, which is important if you actually want to develop and move forward, especially uh, uh, doing something as uh, crucial as governing a, a large country. And so within that context, uh, uh, you know, in his speech, uh, Xi Jinping had his criticisms. And I was hoping you could illuminate for us, Ting, you know, what have been some of the issues, some of the downsides to this kind of uh, economic uh, reform period, and how has that uh, been addressed uh, uh, by the Chinese government? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the things I think gets, that gets lost in, in sort of the sensationalism of the Western media. You know, this seems to be a, a, a Congress just for, you know, cultivating the individual power of Xi, but not looking actually how the party um, uh, process works in terms of a reflection, a deep reflection in terms of a deep self-criticism of the errors, the mistakes, and the so to, in order to learn and, and to move forward, you know, and this is a key concept in, in the CPC, which is the idea of a self-revolution, the party's capacity to evolve and, 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 and change with the context, you know, and that requires serious self-criticism of the wrongs of the past. So, um, she actually talked about, you know, the, he acknowledged the many great achievements during the report, reform period in kind of advancing socialist modernization. And he says, and I'm quoting here, at the same time, however, uh, a number of prominent issues and problems, some of which have been building for years and others that were just emerging, emerging demanded urgent action. And then he went on to say some pretty strong words, including that the, the party was sliding towards a weak, hollow and watered down party leadership. Uh, he talked about some of the you know, party members behaviors and saying that money worship, hedonism, egocentricity and historical nihilism were deep seated problems in the party. And then. And I think one thing I just mentioned briefly is that the development process was imbalanced, uncoordinated and unsustainable. I mean, these are pretty harsh words to talk about your own party uh, that you have been leading over the last decade. But I wanted to just kind of step back to say, you know, to, for us to understand and appreciate what's been done in the last 10 years is where the party was at 10 years ago when she took the post. I had mentioned briefly about uh, Hu Jintao, the previous president and general secretary's handover speech 10 years ago, um, where he mentioned corruption 16 times. And he had a, this was his outgoing speech. So it was one of the messages for, you know, kind of passing the torch forward. And he says, if we fail to handle this issue well, corruption that is, it could prove fatal to the party and even cause a collapse of the party and the fault of the state. I mean, heavy words. 
And then you'll see, interestingly, in the inaugural speech that she makes when he takes the podium as the general secretary is the famous um, flies and tigers, you know, that he will go after not only the sort of the lower uh, the people in the lower echelons of the party in terms of corruption, but the people high up. And we've seen a really important and, and serious uh, uh, look into corruption that had really um, infected many levels, all levels of society and in government uh, that was, as who said, uh, uh, could be fatal to to the Chinese state and the party itself. So we've seen since then uh, a huge amount of resources put in to look at the flies and the tigers. And what that has done um, um, has been uh, a huge increase in the confidence of the average Chinese person. I mean, you, you talk to pretty much anyone, and that probably is one of the single-handedly the, one of the most important um, uh, campaigns that has helped gain the confidence of people and say this is this government is serious to tackle its own issues. So that's one of the I think key aspects I would like to highlight. But uh, beyond that, I mean, there's many other aspects that we can go into in terms of you know the environment or economy or a variety of other aspects. But I think it's important to look at that self-criticism of the party itself and what it's done in the last 10 years. Definitely. And we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. That's right. We are back continuing our special second hour today discussing socialism and democracy in China. And right before we went uh, to break, Tings, you were talking about uh, uh, some of the different ways of how uh, uh, critique and criticism and uh, sort of the overall uh, ideological frame, if you will, of the Chinese government, of course, governed by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, reflects on different issues like the environment and the economy. And I wanted to drill down on that uh, for a little bit, if we could. And, and really, I want to touch first on uh, how uh, 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 the party orients, if you will, towards the issue of environment and climate change. I mean, China is uh, still a developing country, even as it's on pace to become uh, the most consequential economy uh, on the, the, the planet. And I feel like we hear a lot of uh, analysis and criticism around uh, China and the uh, and environment. And so, I, I mean, from your perspective, Tings, how do they sort of uh, uh, contend uh, with that issue in terms of of both uh, uh, carrying through the development that they know is necessary and uh, uh, trying to keep an eye uh, towards, you know, preserving uh, the environment in this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the um, huge costs um, of this rapid expansion and economic sort of catching up with the West, if you will, um, was on the environment. And I don't think that's something... Um, it can be hidden, you know, um, can be just sort of tucked away. I remember I live in Beijing now. I remember the first time I came here was in 2005 and just seeing the air quality, seeing the sandstorms. And it was something that was really hard to imagine that 
that, you know, 17 years later, I'm here and I can see mostly blue skies um, on on uh, any, it's actually rare to see a, a smoggy day. So that's just a, you know, a little personal anecdote of what I see out my window. But I think there's been a huge attempt, especially in the last 10 years, to sort of correct uh, some of the, or at least um, uh, restore some of the environmental uh, damages that have been done and particularly under what's been called the green water and green uh, green water and green mountains um, campaign that uh, she um, is a concept that she brought forward and how to sort of balance human development economic development uh, with the environment and we've seen actually some interesting gains not only on air quality which actually the last seven years or so uh, China has reduced the same amount of air quality pollution as uh, the US has in I think the last three decades so it's be becoming to reach levels of the uh, of, of um, it's still quite high you know there's many cities that are still above the kind of health warning levels uh, that should be recommended but I think there's been huge gains around that question. Uh, another aspect is around um, reforestation. You know, that's one of the big aspects of how to deal with, you know, um, the question of desertification and et cetera. And over the last 20 years, China's actually uh, planted a quarter of the world's new forests. And I think this is something that, you know, gets little reported uh, on in terms of contribution actually globally, you know, to the lungs of the earth, let's say. Um, and uh, beyond that, I think there's been a strong commitment um, around this transition to a, uh, a low-carbon uh, uh, society. And, you know, uh, China is now a leader in the re renewable energies um, uh, areas, whether it's wind, power, and also thinking about electric vehicle development. And that's been something that's been hugely, and it's impressive. I know I always tell people about how shockingly quiet the streets are in China because almost all the cars and buses are electric and motorbikes and everything that almost you know, you realize that the amount of noise pollution, not just air pollution, that these these kinds of vehicles um, create and that kind of stress in a city that that actually adds to. Um, so um, with that, I think on the global scale will be a big question about um, uh, China's leadership and what it can do in order to uh, reach the goals that it's stated over the last couple of years, which is that um, it'll peak uh, its carbon emissions. And I think that actually says something about China still is a developing country. It still has not yet reached its peak of carbon emissions, whereas, you know, European countries have reached that in the late 80s, early 90s, and have kind of 30 years head start and hasn't really done much on the question of uh, carbon neutrality. And then the goal is, of course, in, in 2060, uh, becoming a carbon neutral society. So we'll be seeing, I think, a lot of um, innovation, a lot of um, uh, policies and, and ways to make that a reality. Um, and for a country of this size, I think it's a huge challenge, but I think it's something for exciting for us to look forward to. Absolutely. And and what of the Chinese economy, Tings? And, and I feel like this is a really important uh, aspect of this whole piece for a number of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, when we talk about this uh, a new Cold War era that we're in with uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, attacking China, uh, uh, obviously because it feels 
uh, under threat by China, who has had this uh, peaceful rise that that you describe, which threatens to uh, uh, basically replace the United States as uh, the world's largest and most uh, consequential economy. And so, what we're seeing uh, uh, from uh, the U.S., you know, vis-a-vis Taiwan and a whole bunch of other things, and the parallels that I think we could even note there between uh, that and the uh, proxy war in Ukraine, uh, we see that the Chinese economy is obviously a crucial aspect of all of this. And even from uh, that same ideological standpoint that we were talking about a little earlier, I know one of the most persistent uh, conversations on the left in the U.S. is whether or not uh, uh, the character of China's economy is socialist, you know, and things like that. And and so uh, uh, how do how does rather the Chinese government and its ruling party uh, sort of conceive of the uh, economy and the role that it plays in trying to raise the uh, uh, living standards of its people and, and move uh, towards that that uh, socialist horizon, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to just use the kind of give us a sense of what what's happened over the last seventy years to and to appreciate, I think, uh, where China's. Um, economic development is and sort of how it came to be. And I know this is one of the big questions, especially for many people on the left to understand of China. I mean, in 1949, China was an extremely poor country, you know, uh, it's, it's impressive that, you know, now it's the second largest economy, but when at that point it was only 5% of the world's economy, but a huge population. And there were something like eight African countries and two Asian countries that were poor, uh, than China at that time. And, and so how does it get to, um, uh, you know, the second largest economy? Uh, you could argue it's the largest economy if you, you know, do the measures according to the uh, purchasing power parity. But anyway, um, that's a big question, you know. Um, so one of the things, of course, in terms of is China's um, uh, economy really socialist, um, I think really emerged uh, in the uh, Deng period with the opening up of reform um, and this question of, okay, in order for us to develop uh, rapidly uh, the productive forces, then we need an injection of capital. There's no way to do that without injection of capital. And that includes uh, re- reintegrating a segment of the capitalist class, not as a whole, but in certain areas. And what that was under was under a policy of keep the big, let go of the small, was what it was called. Uh, that means the main strategic industries uh, were still very much in the hands of the state. And then some other uh, secondary industries would go uh, and be able to uh, receive private capital. And then, of course, foreign uh, foreign direct investment. But I think one thing I think is key to, to mention in here is it wasn't just only the capital. It was also um, an exchange for the knowledge and the technology so that um, China can also build its own uh, uh, supply chains and also develop the technology internally. It needs to have that technology knowledge transfer. And I think that's essential for, I think, a lot of third uh, world or developing countries to be able, in terms of the, the bargain it gets in order to be able to develop um, uh, in a sustainable or in a way that's more advantageous to the c- countries of the global south. But, but that being said, I think it's important to say that still, um, you know, when you look at uh, the key sectors of China's society, um, it's still in, in, in terms of public hands, whether we're talking about um, land, where we're talking about the energy sectors, whether we're talking about 
any any major bank. Uh, so the state has an incredible amount of control over the economy, and very much so that there are capitalists, but there isn't capitalism. And I think this can be shown with some of the clear um, and very kind of strong messages that were sent over the last two years in terms of the questioning of big tech private big tech, um, and most famously with Jack Ma's Alibaba, you know, uh, and many uh, big tech platforms that were starting to, um, let's say, cross some lines into what a private uh, company can do, whether they were entering areas of, you know, the financial market without being accountable like a bank is, and in China, the banks are state-owned, um, and also the question of sort of what it meant in terms of the ownership of data, you know, data as a commodity. Now there's a huge debate in China about data uh, that should be a public good and regulated and controlled by the state, not by private enterprises. You know, I think that's actually quite an interesting and, and fruitful debate because, you know, data is is not only money, but it is also uh, about our security and, and, our, and, and all of the information about you know, human beings. That aside, I think that has shows a lot about the character of the Chinese uh, economy is still very much that um, there is capital that is subservient or under the uh, uh, command, let's say, of of the government of the state and which is under the leadership of the CPC. Um, and so in that sense, it's too difficult to just do a black and white capitalist socialist. It is definitely a socialist economy with very specific characteristics where the market has been incorporated in a, a variety of sectors. I mean, the private sector does employ most uh, of, of the Chinese people, especially in the urban areas doesn't mean that they control the most essential parts of the of 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 the of the country. Hope that I answered your question all right because it's a big question and we can go into some elements more depth. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, definitely a lot there. And, you know, uh, also another aspect of this, of course, Tings, is how all of this is being uh, 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 received and uh, portrayed in the U.S. and the West. And without fail, you know, whether it's Xi Jinping or uh, whether it's Nicolas Maduro, whether it's the head of really any government that uh, Washington deems as an enemy, there's always this uh, effort to uh, uh, demonize and stigmatize that leader and make them out to be this uh, a despotic uh, authoritarian is a favorite word uh, that they like to use that is basically imposing itself on uh, the people of their country. And certainly I think that was the case with uh, the coverage of this uh, uh, latest Congress from the Chinese Communist Party, because within the U.S. media, I mean, there was just a lot that was being said about Xi Jinping, his reelection as general secretary of uh, of a party for a third time, as well as what they called his stacking of uh, crucial party structures with so-called loyalists. So uh, can you give us some insight into like, what is really going on with the election of Xi for a third term? Is it as undemocratic as the Western media claims it is, or is there more at uh, uh, play? You know what I mean? Because I feel like a big part of the problem is a misunderstanding of the democratic processes of other countries like China and also, frankly, a kind of racist, uh, chauvinist uh, ideas about uh, uh, Western definitions of democracy being supreme. But even bound up in all of that, uh, Tings, how do you see it? No, I think it's a it's an important question. I mean, I think one of the things we're talking about in terms of socialist modernization, the first of the five characteristics that she brought up was, OK, how do you do this for a large country? I mean, country 
of 1.4 billion people. Just the party alone is 96 million people, which would be the 17th most populous country if we were if it were a country. So this is a huge ship to steer and huge ships don't move quickly uh, if you want to actually get anywhere um, uh, with also the you know consensus and the will of the people uh, uh, represented. So I think one of the things is there's a sort of, I think, myth uh, or, or uh, an idea, I think it's a myth, about the Western liberal democracy as being the ultimate uh, be all and end all. You know, this every four or five years, go to the polls, get elections and that you can, you know, govern. And I think in many cases, we've already seen how there's many faults with that type of electoral system. That being said, I think back to China is it's a big question of how to understand uh, how democracy actually is in practice, not just in name, in the structures and in how it's uh, actually performed. And I'll just do a little plug here, but um, I've given you, you asked this question is that we're a part of Dongsheng, we're making these videos. Uh, we just published one last week, and we're about to publish one next week. And it's a series of videos of trying to sort of demystify a little bit of the political uh, uh, system here in China. Um, and one of the things, I think, is to actually understand how the party responds from the bottom all the way up in the, the kind of structures. And I won't have enough time here to go into it. But maybe I'll, I'll just even go into how uh, people end up at this um, uh, Congress. What is the Congress about? How do people get elected and how do they elect the structures above them? And I mean, at this Congress, there were um, nearly 2,300 um, candidates that were selected. And they were actually came out of electoral units that exist in, um, you know, provinces, or it could be uh, autonomous regions, or even by uh, state-owned enterprises. There's a variety of uh, 38 electoral units in the country. And this is a process that starts, you know, well, a year, more than a year in advance where there's nominations of candidates, there's reviews of candidates, there's, you know, public announcements, there's engagement of that, there's voting for these uh, candidates to until they get into um, to be the 2,300 members that arrive uh, for this week-long uh, National Congress. And it is those people who actually then elect who is next in the uh, uh, Central Committee and then, you know, up to the Politburo, and then finally the the, the top uh, leadership of the party, which is a seven-member uh, standing committee. And and I wanted to say that you know these delegates represent a broad range of society. Um, you know, uh, about a third of them are workers from various industries, um, including um, um, uh, you know peasants, uh, industrial workers, and, and and service workers and the like. And we have, you know, 11.5% who are from the variety of ethnic minority groups in China, uh, which is actually larger than the percentage of the population they represent, and then a quarter who are women, just to give you a sense of breakdown of who's there. And so I think there sometimes isn't an appreciation of how involved um, from the bottom up to top, just to get to some of these spaces uh, and, and how much sort of consultation and even, um, let's say, a kind of consensus building that is required to, to, to get to this level. Because the thing is, as much as I think the West would like to paint uh, uh, Xi um, as, you know, this dictator that is just, you know, trying to uh, uh, kind of uh, build his power base around him. I mean, I think is uh, I think you're right around the sort of racist chauvinism is to think that 1.4 
billion Chinese people don't have minds and don't debate and don't have opinions and are just going to bend over backwards for one leader just because they are the leader of the CPC. It's just not how you govern. It's not how you build trust and certainly not how you get a 93% uh, uh, supporter rating, and this is not from the Chinese media or Chinese state, that's numbers coming from Harvard after a 13-year-long study. So these are, I think, sometimes this this attitude that is, I think, fundamentally racist, uh, that kind of denies a kind of subjectivity and a participation of the Chinese people, both in its, you know, in in the in its future and how uh, the govern uh, the governance works and how all the party is built. And, and I think um, sometimes they get quite frustrated with that aspect um, because it negates, you know, pretty much 1.4 billion people. <laughs> Minus one, I guess, if 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 only the top <laughs> leader is what matters. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, we have returned for our special second hour of By Any Means Necessary, focusing on socialism and democracy in China. We continue to be joined by Ting's Chalk. And Ting's, we just left off uh, talking about uh, not only some of the democratic processes within China and uh, the reality of it, as opposed to what we hear from the U.S. government and its uh, uh, corporate press. And uh, uh, the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, there's a 90 three percent approval uh, level for uh, Xi Jinping as a leader, which, (laughs) to say the very least, is, uh, you know, uh, quite unlike uh, uh, approval ratings that we see for leaders here in the U.S. You know what I mean? But yet and still, we are all told that uh, basically it's a situation with Xi uh, uh, putting himself uh, back in power, you know, doubling down on this um, idea of him as a dictatorial sort of figure. But, you know, given what we discussed here, the fact that Xi is going to enter his uh, a third term, but what does that say about the, the, the level of trust, if you will, or the real feeling that the Chinese people have both in the ruling party and in Xi Jinping um, as their leader in terms of the direction that uh, uh, they want to take the country? You know what I mean? Yeah, just uh, just for one clarification, that ninety three percent number was the confidence in the the CPC, uh, particularly the central government. So not mm-hmm. about she himself. I actually haven't seen any studies on that. Okay, but thanks. that being said, I mean one of the things I think um, uh, is important is I mean China has a huge uh, sort of historic tradition of of recognizing that you know the the leaders the. And this is even before the CPC, you know, we're talking about the times of imperial, you know, the emperors and all this was the idea that, you know, there is no God given right. There is no divine order. There's no kind of absolute leader that's 
that's has this um, can take this position and to lead the country and lead the people if it doesn't do and and perform and and show its benefits for the people and you know this is counted in sort of thousands of years of histories of the peasant revolts of mass revolts and toppling of dynasties after dynasty because the fundamental question is the right to govern is is when you meet uh, the basic. Uh, needs of the people. Um, so I think just as a kind of historical sort of civilizational look, and it's something deeply ingrained in the Chinese people and Chinese history. That being said, I think there are some, I think we can look back in this last 10 years and some of the real achievements. And I mentioned, you know, I think the, the, the campaign against corruption really did uh, change the feeling uh, concretely, uh, I mean, to people's daily lives. And uh, in addition to that, actually, um, a, a new study that just came out that in the last 10 years, you know, serious crimes fell by 30%. At the same time, there's been a lessening, lessening of, um, instead of increasing of uh, the, the, the sentencing, you know, using more lenient measures, looking at misdemeanors and all this. So this is also reflected in sort of uh, the security that, that people feel in their day-to-day -day lives. And I just want to mention another thing I think that's a really important part about, you know, meeting the needs of the people. And and actually where you started off talking about the U.S. and, you know, a real, um, I think, danger in the moment we live in globally is when we see an empire like the U.S. in decline because it's failing to resolve the problems of its own people and also um, um, that, you know, creates a reaction also of sort of lashing out, of using the, the war machine, uh, which is one of the only ways I think the U.S. knows of how to sort of stimulate its own economy. But that being said, we're talking about China, is um, what has been done around poverty. You know, I had mentioned a lot about, you know, the, some of the successes, you know, economic growth, the reform and opening period, but there were still a large number of people that were living in poverty, in extreme poverty. Um, those people who hadn't been touched yet by, you know, the kind of economic lifting that came with the reform, which created a you know, middle class of 400 million people. I mean, it's the largest middle class of the world. But... This, there was still a, more or less 100 million people when she came into power um, that were living in under extreme poverty. And so the biggest campaign that probably has uh, has happened and what he uh, she says he spent the most time working in um, is going uh, to the countryside and sending three million cadres of the party to live and work uh, with each individual poor household until they are lifted or they lift themselves out of poverty. And this is kind of a mobilization, not only of the party forces, but also the whole society. You know, you have to get the private enterprises, the state-owned enterprises, you get the people from the cities, you get the students from the universities, and it's a mobilization of the whole society. I mean, I think these are types of campaigns that win the confidence of the people. And as much as, and I'll add one more element, as much as, you know, uh, I think this is, we're into year three of the COVID situation. Um, and of course, there is sort of um, fatigue with still living with COVID and this still changing uh, 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 virus that, the you know, has, has attacked the whole world. You know, the policies that have been taken here did save millions of lives. You know, there was a very clear um clear message and a clear action that protecting lives is more important than protecting economic interests. 
you know, here this year, for example, uh, in the kind of economic recovery period, uh, China actually decided to not have a GDP, an uh, economic growth indicator or goal for this year, which is a, a tradition here. And that because that's because there's a focus on, okay, getting the people back on their feet. You know, let's not just say grow the economy at all costs, people first. And I think that's been shown to the people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to also uh, touch on uh, uh, the issue of Taiwan, Tings, because the uh, Wall Street Journal reporting on uh, uh, the recent Congress said, quote, uh, the Chinese Communist Party amended its charter to include the phrase firmly oppose Taiwan independence. Uh, the journal also claims that other appointments and changes indicate a so-called tougher stance on Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. media has made many comparisons between Ukraine and Taiwan and has attempted to draw a similarity between the two as it continues its portrayal of Ukraine as a democracy defending itself against an authoritarian Russia. So in this rapidly shifting global arena, how do you see the issue of reunification evolving as the U.S. war drive against China intensifies and draws in another front against Russia? You know, I think there was quite a lot of attention in the Western media on this point you know, as if, you know, there won't be a kind of a response, at least to say, okay, we're we're still on the path to reunification, uh, given the huge amounts of escalations and provocations towards war, at least the hot war that the U.S. has made, of course, highlighted by Pelosi's visit, which is um, to, to Taiwan. Um, but, I mean, thinking about national reunification, I mean, since I'm you know, going back in history today, but is that, you know, I think the history of Chinese civilization is one of trying to build national unity, you know, throughout the dynasties is a country that is very diverse of, you know, regions, religions, language, ethnicities, etc. And so what happens, you know, in period, especially of the increasing imperial aggressions of the 19th century, um, highlighted by the Opium War and the seeding of the territories that I was born in, which is Hong Kong. Um, and of course, you see Taiwan also under uh, Japanese rule. It's been a process that has been unfinished in terms of a national reunification. Um, we saw Hong Kong return to China in 1997. Macau, where my mother is from, uh, was a Portuguese colony for almost 500 years, uh, went back in 1999. Taiwan is part of China. It's part of the One China Policy. One China Policy is at the fundamental core of the relations, bilateral relations between the U.S. and China, specifically when they were normalized uh, after Nixon's visit in 1972. So this is not a question. National reunification has always been there. Right now we are seeing uh, increasing escalations and provocations. And I think actually China has been quite calm uh, in its responses. You know, many people were expecting a kind of uh, a military in, uh, a sort of response when Pelosi's uh, plane landed. I mean, there were words, strong words being said. At the same time, I think what China has consistently reiterated and hasn't changed, I mean, since the foundation of the PRC is a strive for a peaceful reunification. And, and she also reiterated this, you know, he said, we will strive for a peaceful reunification with the greatest sincerity, of, uh, sincerity and effort, but, I mean, will not renounce the use of force if pushed to do so. I mean, I think that's something for us um, to, to, to keep a note on. I mean, the provocations aren't being led by China, you know, but at the same time, it, it's feeling threatened to want to, uh, uh, you know, defend its, its historic 
mission and course of unifying the country that has been split uh, after two centuries of imperialist intervention. Um, and I just wanted to add another point is that sometimes we talk about, oh, is the war coming? Is the war coming? Is There is already a war happening in the sense of, you know, especially on the, you know, Taiwan question, but uh, on, on the questions of, you know, economic sanctions, the media disinformation, the long-arm jurisdiction that the U.S. likes to practice, uh, uh, clear interference in internal affairs, you know, these are really the, you know, tools in the hybrid war um, um, toolbox in play, right? And now we're seeing an even more of an advanced um, kind of escalation on the question of chips, of semiconductors. You know, the U.S. policy is one of quote-unquote choke points, you know, how to strangle um, a China's chip sector. Uh, and, you know, there was the recent Chips Act that Biden passed, but, you know, adding to the slew, uh, we can't even keep a taps on of sanctions that's in place on, on China. So, I mean, I don't think... Um, we can expect anything else than a country that's going to say words to and, and be able to defend itself because um, whether it's from a, an aspect of security or whether it's uh, on this path to reunification set on the terms by the Chinese people and also in a conversation between Chinese people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits. Yeah. And on that note, Tings, uh, uh, I'm also wondering about, you know, what might the uh, uh, relationship between Russia and China uh, sort of mean uh, for this moment as well, uh, particularly within the uh, uh, context of the ongoing war in Ukraine and, and what that might mean, if anything, for this reunification question? I mean, I think that... Um, um China, as much as uh, has been a, a key ally of Russia, I mean, uh, when the last time uh, Putin and Xi met during the Beijing Olympics, you know, it was a clear affirmation of the, the a friendship without limits, as what it's called. So we can say that the relationship between the two countries is at its highest, whether you're talking about economically, uh, whether it's uh, politically, um, and 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 on questions of energy and a variety of questions on on the military question as as has been shown you know China has not taken any active uh, position in support of Russia in a military uh, uh, way or in terms of the war in Ukraine. That being said, uh, Russia and China, this relationship is essential when we're talking, you know, looping back to that question about multilateralism and and building a sort of different or at least a counterweight to U.S. unipolar hegemony that has been basically ruling the world uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, and they're going to be key in forming uh, blocks uh, such as or re, uh, sort of strengthening blocks such as BRICS. You know, of course, we were very happy to see the results from uh, Brazil's election with Lula winning uh, in his third term um, the presidency there. He has said consistently in various um, 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 talks and, and, and uh, leading up to the elections that there's going to be new energy put forward to rebuild build BRICS, because BRICS is an important um, uh, uh, multilateral institution, both from a political uh, aspect uh, for these big countries of the global south, but also from an economic aspect in terms of another pathway for development for these countries. Um, I think I just want to touch on uh, other important um, multilateral blocks that involve China and uh, Russia is the SCO. I mean, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that focuses on the West and Central Asian region. Xi's first international visit since the pandemic was to 
Uzbekistan, where the heads of state of the SCO met in Samarkand. And I think that is actually quite symbolic, not only because of this region's import, this region's importance in creating a sort of multilateral uh, space, uh, but also was where the Belt and Road Initiative was inaugurated back in 2013. And a block like the SCO, uh, even though it's only nine countries, represents a quarter of the world's GDP and 40% of the world's population. Just as a comparison, the G7, with only 10% of the population, has 50% of the global wealth. So this, these kinds of regional blocks, and, and this is where China and Russia relationship is going to be very key for the rest of the world, for the global south, uh, is in contesting uh, or providing a counterweight to U.S. hegemony. Yeah, and we got maybe about uh, three minutes or so left here, Tings. And just as a, a final general question, why, why do you think it's important that we continue to uh, uh, keep a closer eye and uh, a real, a, a sort of a, a critical eye towards what's happening in China, uh, you know, by that meaning sort of trying to uh, peer through the sort of thick uh, veil of propaganda around it that we see chiefly from uh, uh, the U.S. and the West, you know, uh, Basically, why is it important to understand uh, what's happening inside China right now? I mean, I think it's not only, I think, from economic terms, but I think in, in our conversation, we've been talking about what it means for, you know, the future of humanity and future of the planet, you know, and I think where uh, China as a large country um, and the second largest economy will lead, will help, you know, steer on a path that I think hopefully is less violent, less war-ridden, less bloodstained, as she said, that the Western capitalist dominance of the last centuries have shown to us. Uh, so I think, I guess, my my uh, invitation is for any listeners is to look, um, to stay curious and to be open about what uh, uh, what China uh, is, is, is doing, because it's a country that is moving as much as its size is so big, it's moving quite quickly and its changes actually have impact for the rest of the world whether you agree with China or not. And that's one of the reasons actually we found the Dongsheng News Collective was just to provide basic information. You know, if you're interested in science and technology around people's life, you're interested in agriculture and the environment, get the news, get the information and, you know, assess for yourself. But um, I think let's not fall into the trap of the Western media that gives such a shallow, such a one-sided, such a, you know, uh, uh, I think it's cutting, uh, it's kind of actually... Um, it, it's, what is that phrase about like shortchanging as yes, it's shortchanging us all. If we think that's enough to explain a country of the size and the stature and what it means for the world. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Tings, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch It DC. We'll be back next week with an all new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.